Can anybody guess what I'm talking about today? And as you'll have noticed, I'm breaking into your series on the Psalms, but not really. The Psalms are simply conversations with God. They're, they're simply prayers between probably the greatest psalm writer of all, which was David, which were conversations about what was going on in his life. There's prayers of desperation, there's prayers of glory, there's prayers of adoration, there's prayers of excitement. And this morning, I want to challenge each of us about where our prayer life is at. How do our conversations go with God? Are they just uh, a ritual that we do in the morning? Are they just a, a rote that we've learnt off by heart? Or is it a genuine conversation? And I also want to share some examples in my own life where God has answered prayer, but not in ways that I thought he would, and even not even knowing that they were prayer. And I know Neil prayed for me before I got up here, but I would love to pray again before we open the word of God and before we get into it, I'd love us to just bow our heads for a moment. Lord in heaven, we're here before you this morning. Each of us in a different space, in a different place in our lives. Each of us yearning for something greater than ourselves, seeking something that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. So Lord, as we open your word, may you touch each of our hearts individually this morning. May you just be into this space so that we can find you. Lord, help me to speak what you've put on my heart in words that others will understand, that I will understand. So Jesus, help us now, we ask in your name. Amen. I want to thank uh, Pastor Sarah for her invitation to be here this morning. Um, she doesn't let just anybody up the front, um, so I do thank you for that. And um, it's been a long time in the making. Um, if anything, you have any concerns about what I speak this morning... Uh, my first year intern supervisor is here, uh, Pastor Joe Webb. He taught me everything I don't know. And the irony is now I'm the supervisor for his daughter Sarah while she does her internship of 15 years. Um, so it's all Joe's fault if either of us mess up. <laughs> and Lynn, you look mighty at home, just being a grandma. And just, uh, she's already put one child to sleep. So if anybody's having problems with children sleeping, um, yeah, it's not my sermon yet. <laughs> Who knows or thinks they understand the Lord's Prayer? Does anyone know the Lord's Prayer? A bit over these eyes. A few people with their hands up. Anybody got rough ideas? Is anyone brave enough to tell me what the Lord's Prayer is? Or you can do it all together. I forgot the, to explain the part where I'm interactive. You can feed back to me. So, um, yeah. But you did very well in reciting something. But what if I was to tell you that's not the Lord's prayers? It's a beautiful piece of scripture. We find it in Matthew and Luke. But is it the Lord's prayer? It might say so in the title of the, the Bible that you have in front of you. It might be what you learnt when you were in school when we actually got to say the Lord's Prayer in school, in state schools. I remember those days. It might be what you hear recited at funerals. It might be what you hear recited at, at certain events. But is it the Lord's Prayer? 
Well, I'm going to burst your bubble and say, no, it's not. Because in Luke, the disciples have been journeying with Jesus and they've watched Jesus in his methodology about how he encounters with God, how he does his daily life. And it keeps repeating, Jesus would take himself away from the crowd, he would take himself to a place of solitude and he would pray. Now, in the understanding we have of the disciples and in their time, the Pharisees were the main religious leaders of the day. And these guys knew how to pray. They really knew how to pray because they would stand on a street corner corner and they would go, Oh God in heaven, I am so glad I'm not like these sinners that walk past me. I am such a magnificent Pharisee. They would pray out loud on the street corners to show their piety and their religiosity. They would show how great they were with their connection with God by the way they recited their prayers. And... The disciples see this and then they see Jesus' example, which is to remove himself from the grand spotlight and to spend time in prayer. And the disciples come to Jesus in the book of Luke and they say, teacher, rabbi, teach us how to pray. It's a very simple request, teach us how to pray because the example they have is the Pharisees and they see Jesus and they're going, how come this connection's different? These guys aren't doing signs, miracles and wonders. They're in it for themselves. This guy is doing amazing things. What is the difference? And so Jesus says to them, in this manner, pray. Or pray like this. And he starts, as you quite correctly said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus is saying, when you start your prayer, acknowledge who you are and who you aren't. He is God, you are not. He is in heaven, you are not. Hallowed is his name, you are not hallowed. Understand where you sit in the scheme of the cosmic things. And he goes on to unpack that. Acknowledge who it is that gives us our daily bread. Yes, the physical needs of having breakfast in the morning, but the spiritual feed that we get. Who is it that gives us that? Our Father in heaven. And it's important to understand this terminology, Father. It took me ages to get my head around what a father is because I didn't have a good representation of a father. My father took off when I was five, never saw him again for another 17 years. So my perception of what a father is has been very tainted, very biased to one aspect. And it took me ages of pleading and and sometimes just wrestling with God to understand what a heavenly father we actually have, what it is he desires for my life. And if it's a struggle that you're having with today, just keep fighting that battle, keep reading through those Psalms, keep wrestling with God. Keep fighting for that relationship because it's tough and it's not going to be easy. And he goes on, you know, God, protect me from everything this world's going to throw at me. He finishes, and I love the part where he says, forgive others as I have forgiven you. And I put a little one in there, learn to forgive myself as God has forgiven me. Because to forgive self is one of the hardest battles that you and I fight. So if that's not the Lord's Prayer and that's a methodology, a recipe, what is the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's Prayers? Where would I find them? And Jesus has a lot of um, allusion to where he's praying. But there's one specific chapter, and it's found in the book of John, John chapter 17. If you have a device, your Bibles, we're going to do a little bit of unpacking. Um, Not too much, but this is... 
I believe the Lord's prayers. And I use plural because it's broken into three segments. And where it starts is to give context. This is after the Last Supper. Jesus has washed feet. He has given a new covenant through the bread and the wine. And now he's stepping out on his trip to the Garden of Gethsemane on a one-way mission. He is going out into the Garden of Gethsemane to give up his life for the sinful creatures who have been unappreciative of who he has been for three and a half years, walking physically among them. He's stepping out of a space into the salvation of the world. And so he picks up... This is the start of the prayer. The first part of the prayer is Jesus praying for himself. He spoke these words and he lifted his eyes up into heaven. And I want to pause there. Have you ever considered how you pray? What is the right position of prayer? Is it on our knees? Is it flat on the ground? How do you pray? Perhaps you've never considered the methodology of your prayer. It says here, Jesus, standing upright, lifts his eyes up into heaven and he prays. Because there are moments where you're allowed to stand before God. We teach children to be on their knees, close their eyes, bow their heads because we want them to pay attention. And it becomes a ritual that we take through our lives. Be on your knees, bet your head bowed, that makes you pious, that makes you religiously right. You've ever tried that while you're praying unceasingly driving your car to get on your knees, close your eyes? Now, I fully admit there must be a lot of drivers on the road today who are doing just that by the way they drive. And you all know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's some of you. There's a, there's a sidetrack of a piece of scripture where a guy called Nehemiah spends seven days in prayer he spends a great amount of time asking God, what do I need for when I go back to Jerusalem and start the rebuilding of the city? And then, when he goes before the king, the king says, what is it you want? And it says, Nehemiah prayed. Now, I know for a fact that there's no way he would have got on his knees and said, hang on, kingy, I've just got to pray. In the split moment that it took for the conversation to start, Nehemiah says a simple, quick prayer, Lord, help me say the right words. My interpretation. There are moments when our prayer has to be short, sharp, to the point and on the run. But there are greater moments where we actually spend that one-on-one time before God seeking his leadership in our lives. Because we've got it all together in Australia, don't we? We don't need God's help. We live in one of the most lucky countries in the world. We've developed, we've got medical science. We've got everything at our fingertips. We don't need God. Not too many people nodding their heads. The irony, has anybody been to Kurong or the ABC lately? The greatest space given to Kurong, and even in the ABC, is books on what? Prayer. It tells me that we don't know about prayer. That we have this struggle 
with prayer. It's like having a one-sided conversation in a marriage or any relationship. If one person is just there and doing all the talking, is that a relationship? See, we will pray to God, we will dive into the conversation, tell God exactly what we want and how he must do it, and then we leave. We don't stop and wait to see if God's got a better idea or a better answer. So he lifts his eyes up in heaven. The Father says, the hour has come to glorify your name. To glorify your Son, to give glory to you. You have given me authority over all flesh, should give eternal life to as many as have given him. The first part of this, these first three verses is Jesus praying for himself because he knows how desperate the mission is. Jesus needs the strength of the Father to go to a Roman cross, to be nailed on it and to be crucified cruelly. And it's all about bringing unity and glory to the Father. And the prayer is about that unity. It's about, Lord, I've done, Father, I've done what you've asked of me. Help me get through this. Help me get to the finish line. See, Jesus is the authority of the entire world at his fingertips. He's about to give up life for you and I. And then as he continues treading that path to Gethsemane, he looks at the little crew that he's got left, 11 of them. And he considers them for a moment and he goes, I need to give them some power and authority. In verse 6, I have manifest your name to the men that you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. I have given them the words which you have given me. They have received them and have known surely that I come forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. This is the 11. For you are, they are yours, and all mine are yours, yours are mine. There's this whole unity of relationship here. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Protect them. Now I don't know as a disciple of Jesus, if I'm entirely happy with the fact that Jesus is going to be airlifted out after the resurrection, after 40 days of further teaching, Jesus ascends into heaven and he leaves them behind. He teaches another 120 to to be a part of this fold. Over 500 see see him in the resurrected state, but Jesus gets a free pass back to heaven and they're left. Now, I don't know, as a disciple, I'll be like, hang on a minute, Jesus. Why do I have to hang out here? Can I come too? Because Matthew 28 tells us, he says to the disciples, go and baptise in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all things they must know. So Jesus is praying for this small group who will then become a slightly larger group and a slightly larger group that yes, they have to stay in the world for a time and they need to complete a mission that Jesus is put on their shoulders to tell the world about what Jesus has done for them. This is God himself in the flesh praying for his 
disciples. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. God dwells within them and within one sermon by Peter, 3,000 converted in one day. And if you have the, the, get the chance, read Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Read the sermon that Peter, Peter preaches and essentially it is, you killed God, what are you going to do about it? And it hits the people's hearts so hard, they go, what must we do to be saved? Repent, be baptised and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And none of that seems like an entirely fair transaction on God's behalf. Sinners should be punished. You're supposed to say no to that. (laughs) Sinners saved by the grace of God have received the reward of eternal life. Those who reject the words of Jesus get their own reward. And so Jesus prays for this group. And because of that prayer, yes, they still have no understanding until Pentecost what's going on. But the start of the power that's in them to preach the word is there. And then Jesus does something further. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you want to take a rough guess who that prays for? You or me? Us. Jesus prayed over 2,000 years ago for every single one of us sitting in this room that we would display the same unity that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit display. That the church would not have any infighting, backbiting, gossip or any of those things. If I was to take a straw poll vote, how do you think we're going? But you know what? God is such a gracious and loving God that he's still working with us if we want to be worked with. He prays for us not to get us out of the world but that while we're in here that we may be an effective and effective witness for him. That we may show unity so that the world will believe that Jesus sent, that God sent Jesus here. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest arguments against Christianity, and go on any TikTok video, Instagram, whatever, and you'll find a plethora of videos dishing on Christians. Because why? We turn Christianity, we turn faith, over 2,000 years, into religiosity. We turned it into a rules-based, grace-deprived uh, set of circumstances. We became institutionalised. We stopped living lives of faith and we started living lives that were you have to do it this way or otherwise you're out. You have to do it this way or you're out. Jesus prayed for those who believe in the fact that he was sent. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus prayed for those people who would believe that. Not the rules and the regulations and belief. Before somebody says, hang on, the commandments are not. uh, The commandments are still in fact, but they're they're commandments of love. And the commandments that prove that our relationship with Jesus is on track. It's slightly a measuring rod, but it's not a tool of salvation. 
It's a proof of the relationship that we have with an almighty God. It's the same with the fundamental beliefs of our church. There are 28 of them. There could be 29, 30 by the time that I'm done this sermon. I don't know. But (laughs) there's 28 of them currently. They're fantastic truths. They're pillars of who we are as Adventists and what we believe, but they do not save us. Only the blood of Jesus Christ saves us. Only the belief in his gospel message saves us. But the fundamentals and the things we understand enhance the relationship that we have with God. It's like dating somebody and not learning anything about them and then asking them to marry you. What do you think the answer will be? I know your name. I know nothing about you. Let's get married. Ladies, does that sound like a a great invitation? And I don't want to know anything about you after we're married. I won't say my uncle's name, but he told his wife that he loved her at her wedding day. She said, you don't tell me you love me. This is a true story. He told me this himself. You told me on our wedding day you love me, but you don't tell me you love me anymore. And he goes, if anything changes, I'll let you know. They survived 35 years together. This is why God invites us into this thing called prayer. It's a conversation. It doesn't have a dot point way of going through it. It's, it's as the Psalms and as David just pours out, God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the world falling apart around me? Why are things not working out my way? Well, we know because David decided to do his own thing and he's reaping the consequences of his own choices, but he puts it back on God and God goes, okay. I'll take the rap for now. Let's embark on a journey. So, so much so that David writes other psalms where it's glorifying God in heaven. He's called a man after God's own heart. Despite what he did. Despite who he became for a short period of time, he's considered, God calls him a friend, a man after my own heart. Because David was willing to enter into that hard conversation with God. You know the one you don't want to have with yourself in front of the mirror? You know, you ever had that conversation where you look in the mirror and go, who am I? Maybe not. In New Guinea 20 years ago, I was well and truly a long way away from God. In fact, I really, my relationship was God, with God was simply, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. You stay at your place, I'll stay at my place. I did believe that there was a God. I did believe in creation, despite going through the state school system, despite the way I was living life. I believed there was actually a creator. But he, he wanted nothing to do with me, and I wanted nothing to do with him. But in New Guinea, as my world was crumbling around me, I was in a, just a part of the Kokoda track, looking out upon jungle, upon jungle, upon jungle. And I thought to myself, if I disappear from this spot right now, who cares? Distant from my family, no significant relationship, just me against the world. And I looked at this jungle and went, all right, God, if you're real, prove it. That was my prayer. I didn't know it was a prayer at the time. I just thought I was challenging God to a one-on-one fight. It's pretty one-sided when it's with God. I'd like to say angels from on high came down and ministered to me, but they didn't. There was no lightning bolt moment or epiphany that 
changed my life in that moment. None of that happened because that's not how I work. I'm a builder. Things go in order. Foundations, walls, roofs. That's how you build a house. You don't start with a roof. So God knows how I operate. And so what he did instead was when I came back to Australia, he started to put Christians in my path. Now, I don't like Christians. I do now. But I didn't then. They're just a weird group of people. They're just like, oh, man, stop it. But he started to put Christians in my path. Baptists, Presbyterians, even a Catholic. Beautiful people. People of prayer. Solid people. And it piqued my curiosity because I met a brand of Christianity that wasn't rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. It was just grace-filled, spirit-filled, Christ-filled people. And they spoke into my life words of love. It's the only way I can describe them. And so God started to answer a prayer that I prayed in the jungles of New Guinea that I had no idea was a prayer. And sometimes our prayers are that simple. God, I challenge you to be there. If you've never prayed in your life, start with a simple prayer. God, I challenge you to be there. And then hold on tight. Because the ride he'll take you on is quite amazing. My second prayer was, I don't know where to go with my life. In fact, I didn't... So this is my plug for Big Camp, by the way. If you're coming to Big Camp, Big Camp is, by the way, not a reunion. Big Camp is a chance to invite somebody to come and meet Jesus. There's somebody in your family, in your neighbourhood, in your friendship circle that hasn't heard somebody tell them about Jesus yet. And Big Camp is a great opportunity to invite, come, invite someone to come and see and meet the Lord. I sat at the right corner post at the Big Tent. Yes, the Big Tent. Ironically, I'm in charge of, again, this year. <laughs> but I sat at the right corner post off to the side of the soundstage with no intention in whatsoever. I just got invited to come along and hear a guy present about Jesus. So I sat there at the back quarter post. I had no intent of doing anything that's just listening, getting through the five days and going home. And on the Thursday night, I can't tell you who the speaker was. I can't remember. On the Thursday night, I found myself standing at the front of the stage because he'd asked me if I wanted to follow Jesus. And I'm not a follower. I don't get up and just do stuff like that. And I found myself standing at the front, looking at my two feet, going, why am I here? I asked myself the same question this morning, looking at my two feet, why am I here? Because God invited me to come along. I then met Pastor Mike Robinson, who took me on a journey. And some of you have been involved in that journey. You know, the Joes, the Richies. Who else is out there? Just trying to see some other faces. So these lights are a bit hard. But I met other Christians who were just exploring their relationships with Jesus. And we went church planting. We did... We had no idea what we were doing, but I tell you what, it taught me, it taught me a lot about prayer. Jesus, we don't have no idea what we're doing, but how are we going to do it? And amazing things happened. People came to meet Jesus because of the power of prayer. 
I met a gentleman, <clears throat> I went off to a prayer conference, and I'm a bit sad that we still don't run them separately. But I went off to a prayer conference over Watson Park, and I met a fellow called Merv Jackson. Merv Jackson is what you would consider an old stalwart of our faith. He's been in the church since he was a little boy, and he's 82 now. He's still ticking. And we met at this prayer conference, and we wrote these prayers out on a piece of paper, and mine was simply, Lord, I have no idea where I'm going, but please show me I'm going the right way. His prayer was for his family, pure and simple. His family had wandered away from the church, and he just wanted them back. And the other guy in that little group was a fellow called Jeff Fraunfelder, who was struggling with the loss of a son in an accident, and he just wanted to know God's peace. And here we are today, and every Monday morning, without fail, Merv still rings me to pray for me. He can't get out and about as much anymore. He's not as mobile as he used to be. He's looking after a sick wife. But every Monday morning, without fail, he rings me to pray for me. And that's his ministry. You might think that you don't have a ministry, but the last time I checked, prayer is free. The phone call might not be, but prayer is free. And anybody can do it. If God puts somebody on your heart, ring them up and pray for them. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know the reasons. But be challenged to pray for somebody. I just, uh, I just reminded myself of another story that South Pine days, we were asked to pray for children in our church. Shara and I were newly married, so we didn't have children. And there's a young... Is he here? No. But we were given the task of praying for a boy who I thought had the devil in him. If I say his name, you'll go, oh, yeah, that could have been right. I won't. I won't do that to him. <clears throat> but we prayed this for this boy, and I think he's turned into a magnificent young man. He's on a journey, and he's not quite in and not quite out of the church, but we continue to pray for him. But I think he's turned into quite a, quite a, a lovely young man. Prayer is free, and anybody can do it. The conclusion of my story is very simple. Prayer has become the only tool that I can rely on in ministry. It's the thing that I hold on to the dearest. It's the thing that I like to try and encourage with my pastors that I look after. It's the thing that I encourage with my family. It's the thing that I encourage in my own life because it's, at the end of the day, all I have got. So if you've never considered prayer in your life or maybe a struggle, just challenge God to open up that world of prayer for you. Let's pray together. Father, I find in the scriptures this prayer of yours for us today. And I'm stunned by it. That 2,000 years ago you prayed for this moment right now for each and every one of us. You prayed, Lord, that we would be effective in this world of telling others what you have done for each and every soul on this planet. So Lord, in this moment, each of us have a care, a worry. We have a praise point. We have an excitement in the relationship that we have with you. And it's just like a moment for each of us to reflect upon what we, what we have with you. So Lord, may you bless us, may you keep us, may your face be turned upon us.
May we be prayer warriors together. In Jesus' name, amen.